here we go in three and two and one Again, and welcome back to Brad Pitt's favorite podcast. This is Matt Men. <laughs> How great would that be? Like one of the 30 people who listen to this thing. <laughs> I just assumed that it is. Is it not? As far as anybody knows, that's part of our 30 numbers. It's Mr. Brad Pitt. I am Matthew Pizana, co-host of this podcast that we are doing here today. And you are Matt. Also, Matt, as well. The other famous co-host from this show. Do you think that Angelina Jolie also listens to the podcast? You know, probably not. But I was just actually about to ask you, who would you rather have listened to this? Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt? Ooh, that's tough. Jolie's got a new movie coming out, so we could potentially get her on the show to promote it. Um, So that's a plus. Pitt's not going, not going anything right now. He's just, you know, doing activism and stuff. Who cares about that on this show? So right now, Joe Lee wins. She's the winner. No, 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 no. Sorry. Only one of them was Benjamin Button. Okay. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about today on the show. Benjamin Button, a whole entire hour of that show that I never made it through all the way. Did you make it all the way through that movie? Yeah, actually, I think I saw it in the theater. I need to watch it again. Oh, so you're forced to. I remember liking it. I wonder if you're going to like this, sir. Let me ask you a question. Let me tell you a statement. It is Twitter fact. Horror movies cannot oh. be set in space. True? That, that, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> For a journalist to write that today, that had to have been um, just a way to get more followers. Getting some trolling. That there's no way an actual journalist could have written that. There, there there's no way. Because at one point you had like four different horror movies set in space trending on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, because people are like the the first two that I saw everyone mentioned was Alien, right? Yes, yeah, sure. And Event Horizon, but I mean, you can go back to you know. Uh, the 50s, you know, you go back to Trip to the Moon. There's some horrific stuff in that. Yeah, for sure. Um, for someone to say you cannot set horror in space, they they cannot say that without it being ironic or they're just simply trolling. Yep. Like there, there's, no, that's not possible. Unlike the uh, fellow a few weeks ago that said he's never watched a black and white movie, it's just definitely something just to get a little bit of promotion out there. Did you expect the movie that I gave you as an example of outer space horror? Do you even remember what I said? Stranded. No. The foreign Oh, movie. don't know it. Some, some Eastern country uh, starring the great Vincent Gallo, and they get stuck in space, and it's a horror movie, and you should watch it. I'll put it on your list, buddy. I'll put it on your list. Anyway, you do that. I'm going to give you another weird Mexican movie. Did you when did you watch the last one? I have not seen it yet. No, oh, I, I cannot wait for you to see this. <laughs> I'm terrified. But this is a, an absurd thing. And besides the fact that you can't I mean, movies can be anywhere in any genre 
at all times if you're creative enough to create that idea. It's just silly to say yeah. something couldn't exist like that. Ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Is it less ridiculous that it's been almost, it will be almost, uh, what, 18 months since California has been open, legitimately open for business? Jeez. But finally, the governor has said June 15th is the goal to reopen the state. What does that mean for movies? What are you thinking? Is it just going to restart? Are we going to have a restart? Where is the industry now? All those questions and more, go. Well, (laughs) uh, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, I think people who haven't lived in California, um, when they talk about California, they basically think of either Los Angeles and not even all of Los Angeles, just like Hollywood. Um, and not even all of Hollywood, just the, you know, the stuff that you see on TV or San Francisco. Okay. Um, cause let's not forget some of the biggest anti-mask, um, protests were in Beverly Hills. Yep. Okay. So, you know, it's not all just, you know, lefty pinko commie liberals out in LA, mm-hmm. you know, out in California, California is the most diverse varied state that we have so is it going to change things yeah people are definitely going to go back but i think you're still not going to see the numbers rise in uh la and uh san francisco and probably uh san diego right Mm. Uh, well even san diego i don't know um I don't think you're going to see like an immediate rush back, but you know, if this past weekend is anything, you know, is any kind of barometer, you're definitely going to see people going back in decent numbers. Um, I think people are going to be trepidatious, but as long as the COVID numbers keep going down, I don't see why people wouldn't go back. I could take on that. I I agree with that. Um, I'm ready to go back myself. I wonder if this gives productions enough runway or they are still just going to be like, well, you know what? We're not going to be able to get this done. So we're going to wait until 2022 to actually start really shooting the majority of stuff. Or are they prepared? I mean, have they have they made up enough preparation between this time to be able to ready to go and hit uh, hit the ground running as soon as June 15th hits? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, because most of the places that are actually shooting aren't in L.A. right now. They're not even in this country. Um, but what's going to be really interesting, I think even more so than COVID, um, well, it's kind of a one-two punch now. You have a lot of people saying they're not going to shoot in Georgia because of some uh-huh. of the, the anti-voting bills they just passed, right? Yep. Um, well, here's the thing. Everything's shot in Georgia. Like everything. Um, so you have COVID restrictions loosening and a lot of people saying they're not going to do business with Georgia. If LA was smart, um, they would give some sweet tax breaks to bring production back home because right now they're shooting everywhere but LA. Mm-hmm. My you know, state can maybe take over everything. Every time that Georgia does something dumb, I tweet out to make sure that everybody remembers New Mexico is still here. Bring us all the business. We will happily have you. 
The one thing about Georgia, though, is that um, it can kind of sub for most states in the union, right? Yep. Uh, like uh, Cobra Kai, which is supposed to take place in the valley, yeah, is shot in Georgia. Now, when they go to the lake and stuff like that, it's obvious they're not in LA. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? Definitely. But, you know, um, Stranger Things takes place in Indiana, shot in Georgia. It's coming um, here. They're shooting it here next time. Is that a for sure thing? Yeah, they already started casting and doing everything else. Yep. Really? Yep. Uh, well, I wonder if that has anything to do with them having to... Uh, um, I, I know part of it takes place in, you know, Siberia. Right. Right. So it just I wonder if they're going to address that. Because the one, the, one of the problems with New Mexico is you guys don't have a lot of forests. Sure. Know, at least not pet, uh, ones that aren't petrified. Right. Um, so, you know, that you'd have to start going to Arizona. And by the time you get to Arizona, just go to L.A. Because um, you can be in every kind of climate in an hour and a half exactly. once you're in L.A. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think L.A., especially with all the trouble they're having just economically, if they gave some kind of really sweet um, tax incentive, they could get a lot of their production back. Speaking of production that's back, Kong versus Godzilla hit That the was theaters. a terrible, terrible segue. Oh, my God. You're usually really good at it, too. I know. I know. That was like, what are you going to do? That, oh, that was it was bad. It's too much dead air. I couldn't handle the pressure. I'm going <laughs> to edit it out so nobody even knows, but I just couldn't take it. <laughs> Kong and Godzilla. Hey, wait, well, then let's do this. Let's give you a second chance, okay? So oh, Don't do that. I'm definitely going to fail here, if you try to give me a second here, chance. Here, okay, okay, better segue. Three, two, one, go. And now we're switching to the next topic, <laughs> which will be Kong versus Godzilla. It has hit the box office to a tune of what forty-eight million dollars, I believe, over this last weekend. It, is made, it, it made ten million less than Tenet in its first four days. In <laughs> domestically, so um, this is the first genuine blockbuster we've had in probably in about year. a year. It's yeah. unbelievable. It feels so good. But yet, I'm reminded as well that we watch a bunch of terrible movies here in America because this movie is not good. No, it's, no, 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 no. Yes, no, please. You're, please. For someone who's writing an entire book about man movies, yes, uh, you really need to reframe how you look at this. Mm. Because. Yes. Kind of like snakes on a plane. When you hear the title "Snakes on a Plane," mm -hmm. you know exactly what movie you're gonna get. You're not going in there expecting something hoity-toity. You know, you're not expecting something highfalutin. You want motherfucking snakes on a motherfucking plane. Mm -hmm. This is movie number four in the MonsterVerse. The first one, you know, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla tried to keep things incredibly realistic and grounded, and what people didn't choice. care for it. Then they did uh, Kong Skull Island, which might be my favorite monster movie of all time, um, which is real fun. Yes, uh, yes, it was. Yeah, it's the, there's so much style to it. And then they had Godzilla King of Monsters, which... Um, I watched again recently and I liked it more the second time in the theater. I left it thinking, eh, not my thing. 
But when you see Godzilla v. Kong and the poster is just them screaming at each other, you know what you're in for. And I think you need to reframe how you look at this, um, not as good or bad, but does it deliver on what it's supposed to deliver? And yes, it does. I, yes, it does. I have started and, to do trend with these kind of movies. And this is what I do. And it started with Hobbs and Shaw. And I will continue to do this with movies. When you end a movie with 30 minutes of CGI over CGI, action on top of action, I'm out. I just don't care. Either mix it in properly or don't leave it for the end of the movie. But I've still never seen the last 25 minutes of Hobbs and Shaw, and I couldn't be more happy about my life. Okay. I feel that way about this movie. Look, I saw the 30 minutes of fighting. Yeah, it was cool that they were on the aircraft carrier and all that, but it gets redundant to me. It gets I, redundant. I, I agree that a lot of that does draw itself out too much. Um, the thing is, this is still under two hours, so it deserves points for that because this could True. be True. like all these other miserable two and a half, three hour long movies. Uh, second, there's literally no other way of doing <laughs> Kong and Fair. Godzilla fighting each other without it being CGI. Like it's just, it, you're not going to have people in suits anymore. Sorry, get over it. <laughs> right. But, but this was supposed to be giant monkey punching giant lizard. And it looks good for what it is. Um, the action is well staged. You can follow it. There's some interesting stuff they do in it. Is it stupid? Oh, gloriously so. Beautifully so. You know, like triumphantly so. It like it's stupid in all the right ways. The people aren't on screen long enough for me to hate them. I uh, love that they had a podcast uh, in there. Yeah, and you know, I know I've, I've seen a lot of people rag on that character, and I didn't mind him. Uh, the one really good criticism I did hear someone say um, is that, and I think it was Red Letter Media, where they said, uh, follow one group of people, not four. Hmm. It's like, yeah, if we followed just one group, that would be something. But um, I will say the human plot is if, if you're not with the main female character and the little girl, if you're not with them, everything else is really pointless. Like you really don't, you, it can be, it can be completely cut. Um, so, you know, I, I, I dug what it was. I remember, you know, spoilers, of course. Uh, <laughs> once I found out that girl was deaf, I was thinking to myself, it'll be awesome. If at the end they find out that, uh, Kong has been able to learn, you know, sign language and they can communicate with him. And I thought they were going to save it for the end. And then like two minutes after I thought that they show that, oh no, Kong knows sign language, which I think is fantastic. I think it might've been a cool reveal later, but you know, I mean, they make it a plot point. They actually use it well. That's great. And um, yeah, it's, it's perfect for what it is. Does that mean it's going to be quality cinema with Marty like this? Uh, I don't know. He might enjoy it for what it is. You know, it's like you're not going to watch Commando expecting, you know, really great banter. 
you know, like 40s style caper banter. You know, you want him to punch people, blow stuff up and say something funny once in a while. And that's and that's what this is. If there was a real Kong and he was on an island somewhere, would you prefer to be close to him to know where he's at all the time, but maybe die very quickly or be on the other side of the world and wait for your demise as he tears his way across the universe? Well, Kong doesn't do that. So if it Earth, was Godzilla, I mean Earth. What's well, if it was Godzilla, then uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'd want to be close. You know, if, if things were going to yeah. go down, I'd want to see it starting. Um, I say that I, I would not want to have been in Japan when the tsunamis hit. So I guess no. I'd rather it's if it's a big animal, I'm down. But if it's water, I'm out. That's what I've decided. There, there is one ridiculous part that even I was just kind of like, huh? Um, they make a point to say when they start fighting in Hong Kong. And by the way, I think it's kind of funny that, excuse me, I think it's funny that China went crazy for this movie, considering Hong Kong is completely destroyed. Like there's not a building left standing in that whole city. But um, I think it's funny that at the beginning of the fight, they say, we're evacuating everyone. Everybody's out of the city. And then like, Five minutes later, they cut to inside this restaurant in a high rise, and you can then people are still watching them fight, and then they start running. It's like you know, once you see you know giant atomic lizard come out of the the ocean, you might want to put down your meal and and then you know get out of dodge. From one end to the spectrum to the other, Gia Coppola, one of the thousand of Coppola family members that apparently makes <laughs> movies now has a new movie coming out called Mainstream, starring the sometimes great Andrew Garfield. Always great Andrew Garfield. Most of the time good Always Andrew great. Garfield. Hmm, I see. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Johnny Knoxville is also involved. Uh, Jason Schwartzman is involved as well. It's a youth kind of movie, and A24 is the... Oh, no, excuse me. IFC Films, which really threw me off because we found out a few months ago that that's a lie. IFC is like no more and I don't understand. But anyways, let's talk about this trailer, shall we? I found it a little bit of Under the Silver Lake, a little bit Same of that here. vibe to there. Now, if, if Garfield wasn't in it and it was someone else. Do you think you'd still get the same vibe or nope. do you think he's just bringing that vibe with him? I think it's just Garfield bringing it with him. Uh, is this what he's going to do from now on? I'm fine with it. If it is, I'm all I'm all in. That, yeah, I'm 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 kind of like under the silver. Uh, uh, what was it under the silver? Like, yep, uh, was not my bag. But I'm not gonna, you know, completely hate on it because I, I could see myself if I had seen it in like college or something. I, I could see myself actually really liking it. Um, it to me, it, it falls into that same category of it's a mess and it's not good, but it's kind of great um, that I would put uh, Southland tales in, yeah. right? Like it feels so like much Southland fascination tales. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's this kind of hyper reality feels like a dream. Like it, it just feels off. Right. And this feels like it's going to be like smack dab in there. 
Um, also, it's funny that it is about youth culture and like everyone in it's in their thirties. <laughs> I, I thought I found that kind of weird. Yeah. Too. I like, okay, I mean, I guess. And Knoxville's I, like fifty, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm old, but maybe maybe I'm missing something here. But yeah, I and you know maybe that's one of the angles that she's playing, especially with Johnny Knoxville involved. I'm I'm fascinated to see how that that works out. Uh, and and taking somebody like Jason Schwartzman, who was the epitome of that youth culture in our youth many, many moons ago, as it were, and, you know, putting him in this older character and see how that works. I think that uh, this is going to be really interesting. I think this is one of the most recent trailers that I've seen for a movie that I'm actually interested and excited about. It's been so long since I could be excited about a movie. Uh, I don't think it's going to be good per se. Uh, she had done Palo Alto, I believe was her first yeah, film. I haven't seen that. She did not seen that as well. Uh, being in the Coppola family, I'm sure she's got some kind of chops, so I'm sure she'll be all right. It'll be weird as well as we get older to watch a youth movie like this. Yeah, how, how it plays to you and me. I'm kind of interested to see. Got a question for you. Works. Yes, what's the title? The title of it is Mainstream. Okay, now what's the name of the group that they form in the movie that they say like 9,000 times in the trailer? I've already forgotten. Was it like no uh, nobody special? Oh yes, yes. There you go. Okay. Yes. Um, they say it so often in the trailer. I thought that was going to be the title. Kind of think maybe it should have been, but I bet the studios thought so. It looks it looks interesting. Um, it could go either way. Um, I think I know which way it will go. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see. I I, I it looks fun. So. Hopefully I'll enjoy it. Along these same lines, these same uh, production companies, IFC Films, Annapurna, A24, are all so important to me as far as I'm concerned to film and to cinema. They've been These kind of companies have obviously been around forever. Uh, we grew up with the, with the mid-levels. Uh, I'm fortunately I'm going to say it. Miramax was a was a key component to our younger uh, our younger selves in film, um, but they were able to bring these smaller films that aren't tiny but aren't huge films to the greater public to be able to see those. Uh, I don't want to talk about the movie that I gave you this week because <laughs> I haven't watched yours yet, but that was an A24 movie, and it's such a weird, unique, interesting idea, and only a company like that could put that out. Paramount is not putting that out. Disney is not putting that movie out. So I want to talk a little bit about how important these companies are to film, to cinema, especially American cinema nowadays, and what we can look for for the future of these companies. Well, I mean, you know, back in probably like 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, um, was it like uh, Paramount Vantage? Yep. Was that it? Like that was a big one where it's like, hey, it used to be what Miramax was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, A24 has turned into uh almost pixar in how identifiable their brand is like when i tell you uh uh there's a movie called was it first cow yep i know that one but i i don't i don't have to tell you who released it yep right um i i, I don't think I, I i can't remember if the lighthouse was released by a24 but it probably was i believe it was yep right that's <laughs> <laughs> what i'm saying like they make these really well done independent films that kind of aren't independent films. They basically make the yeah. movies that 
people used to see in the 40s and 50s, but everything's just a little weird. Just a little. And they're the ones who do art house cinema. You know, Blumhouse has the masses cinema you know, uh, for horror, right? Yep. But they do the art house horror cinema. A24 does. So, you know, when you think of something like Midsummer or Hereditary, you think about A24. And you can, when you think of an A24 movie, you could usually you think, okay, well, we're going to be in an aspect ratio that's probably a little different. <laughs> right. Um, the, you know, we're not going to have a high contrast look. It's going to be uh, a little muted. Um, even though the colors could be funky, it's, you know, the black levels are going to be up just a little bit to where they're not really black. They're a little gray. You know, they have their own look and feel kind of like a big blockbusters from the early mid nineties at universal, how they all look the same, like twister, uh, Jurassic park, uh, dragon heart, those kinds of things. They all look the same because they use the same kind of people. Right. Um, this is the same thing. It is such good branding for them um, that if this is the lane they're going to stay in, that's great. And if they ever want to get out of it, I kind of feel bad for them because I don't know if people will go along with it. But they've released so much good stuff that they have this automatic prestige built in. So when you say this movie's coming out from A24, you're like, oh, I'm probably going to like that because I've liked everything else they've done. Yeah. You know, it's it, kind of like I was saying with Kong, uh, Godzilla v. Kong. When you see A24, you're kind of like 80% there on whether or not you're going to be into this kind of thing. Because again, it's probably something that's kind of indie-ish. And even if it's a drama, there's going to be... <laughs> like, let's say it's a, a drama about some uh, guys trying to distance themselves from an accidental murder. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be a typical movie. There's going to be something in there that's a little off. There's a little bit of a hook. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> they are building a catalog that yeah. is not, it's not there yet, but I think could eventually rival Janice Films, um, the, okay. the group that Criterion owns, because they had such a specific kind of weirdness that they brought to the table and you know a hundred years later they're still vital they're still important as, as a company and i think that some of these films i mean look at the slate this year just two off the top ahead the green knight that's coming the new david lauer oh man cannot wait for that movie that's going to be so awesome well listen to this if you if you just google a24 the the top row of films they list not all well it's not comprehensive but minari Midsummer, Hereditary, The Lighthouse, Uncut Gems, Moonlight, Waves, Mid-90s, A Ghost Story, Killing of a Sacred Deer, It Comes at Night, Eighth Grade, Under the Silver Lake, Death of Dick Long, mm-hmm. you know, Native Son. Like, it's just fantastic little film after fantastic little film. Powerhouse. That is just yeah. powerhouse. They've been around since, what, 2013? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, yeah. Their third movie was Spring Breakers. Not bad. Yeah, they again, they don't have a ton of movies, but they're really good. Lobster, Green Room, hell, The Witch. And they just, it seems, you know, as you listen to them, just think about the directors that have done all these films and they just yeah. know what they're doing when they pick in a, a director to bring in somebody that's 
uh, uh, Jeremy Solonay, who did the Green Room and and um, uh, Blue Ruin. I mean, you let that dude go, and he's he's going to make something fantastic, you know. And so yeah. you know to to let him do his thing, or David Lowry as well, uh, the old man and the gun. I think that they helped out with as well. Uh, so I just think that these companies are so important. I, I don't want to lose this kind of cinema. I don't want to lose these kind of movies because this is what I am always going to gravitate towards. I'm always yeah. going to be interested in this kind of stuff, whether it's new stuff. I've been going back and watching these same kind of movies from the eighties, like a movie like Atlantic city, which was such kind of <laughs> in, in the same kind of vein. It was a, a foreign director, Louis Mao directed the movie and stuff, but it had the same kind of feel, same kind of energy. And I need these movies. That's what keeps me going. So bully to you guys. Keep going. Yeah. Do it better. Do it awesome. Maybe one day you'll get $500 million for a movie too. Uh, Knives Out has a sequel. Netflix paid $8 bazillion for two. this. For two. Yes. Two. Yes. Yes. And it kind of melts my mind we had a little brief discussion about this the other day through text for me it's a little weird because i enjoyed knives out it was it was it was good it was really good but it seems maybe that you could spend that money on five other projects or seven well, other I th projects i think what they're planning on is uh they're hoping it the the next two do the business the first one did and the first one cost like 30 million and made or 40 million and made like 300 right right so they're hoping they can pay 500 million for two more movies and probably make six right like yeah for sure they if they bank even you know 450 or 500 i i don't understand like how netflix sees a return on it you know yeah but like this is one of the problems that we're having with streaming in general is that no one's really sure how well all this stuff does, you know, because the numbers are hidden from everybody. But it, th this, this seems like a big gamble because the first one is great. And I'm kind of surprised it did as well as it did because it's just a movie with people sitting in rooms talking really fast and being funny. And those movies don't really do well anymore. It's right. a who done it that you know who done it. Right. And you know there there's like two young people in the cast everyone else is you know aging. <laughs> and maybe they're it, going after the CBS demographic. Right. So like I I'm wondering if part of it's also just to get Ryan Johnson into bed with them. You know. Yep. And say I know you want to go do your Star Wars movies. You know, but come over here and we'll let you do whatever you want. Yeah. We'll offer you a Scrooge McDuck pile of money and you do your thing. And, you know, he wrote and directed the last one. So it's, you know, I don't know how much of that 500 went into his pocket, but man, that's a, yeah, uh, he done good. Yeah. I, uh, it's weird. It's a weird idea. I don't know if it's going to work or not. Um, all of that being said, the first one was really great definitely do go back and watch that movie watch it a couple of times it is fun it is interesting to see a whodunit when you already know who you know who done it and you know kind of how that that works together again like you said you know it is a lot of sitting in rooms and talking so yeah. there's not a lot of action in there 
um, unless words are action to you. They are yeah. to me. But not the most no, I love it. And the I, I think what they're going to bank it on, uh, they're going to try to assemble the most amazing casts ever. They're going to pull people like if like, I, you know, you know I, I just thought of this, you know, it'd be great if they got um, Jack Nicholson to be in one of these, like just offer him all the money mm -hmm. and build a great cast around him. Kind of like, you know, Christopher Plummer probably did like, you know, like five days of work on this, on this last one. Right. Sure. You know? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, they're just going to try to, you know, razzle dazzle people with uh, star power to get them in. Then, you know, Ryan Johnson hasn't written a bad movie yet. So, you know, it's going to be good, but I just, I don't know if they'll get the kind of return they're wanting, but you know, who knows what they're doing. Like, I, I, I could, I could give you a million different reasons why they would do this and why it would work and why it wouldn't. But at the end of the day, no one knows why Netflix spends the way they do because they just seem to be like Brewster's millions where they're trying to burn through their money as fast as they can. Let's go down the IMDb rabbit hole. I wanted to finish up the show today talking about somebody who we respect, we adore, we love, and his name is Richard Donner. Yes. The great, the wonderful, the powerful Richard Donner has a IMDb consortium of awesomeness 82 oh, credits to his name everything from tv music videos and of course movies so i wanted to just go down this little thing also this is fun for me because i get to steal some of this knowledge from you but the people out there that listen don't always get to hear your um experiences uh, going to usc <laughs> and all the different people you got to talk to and all these stories that you have and so this is fun for me to be able to share that stuff uh, with other people. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Let's just start down here at the bottom and work our way up all the way back to 1960. That's when this man start to work in the industry. As a director. As a director. As a director. I am looking at these first couple of movies and I don't know anything about them, but I do know Zane Gray. And that means something that he did one episode of the Zane Gray Theater. I'm scared I'm, to talk about the DuPont show because I'm afraid they might poison us if we say anything bad. Well, I'm taking a look at, uh, he has writing credits on Men of Annapolis back from 57. That is amazing. Crazy. You know what, that actually kind of, that, the fact that he got, you know, looks like he got a start as a writer um, might be uh, a nice little indication why he had such a long and successful career. You know, he wasn't just, you know, uh, interested in the camera. Like, he understood how to tell a story. Right. Is there a better tandem in TV Western history than the Rifleman and Have Gun Will Travel? No. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. They used to show those back-to-back -back on, I think, Sunday afternoons. And, man, I was enthralled. Uh, first of all, Have Gun Will Travel is the greatest name of a TV Western ever. <laughs> I just love that stupid name. So uh, that is good stuff. 63, Combat. The Twilight Zone. Okay, now six episodes of The Twilight Zone, including, I'm not going to say it's the best episode, but it's the most famous, mm -hmm. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Man. 
The fact that he did that is just, first of all, he's already had a feather in his cap, but we're going to stick one boom right there for that because that is fantastic. That is one of the, if not the best episode of The Twilight Zone. I agree with you completely. I don't know some of these other episodes. I'm kind of interested to go back and watch some of them. Yeah, I'm um, taking a look at it. Th- I think I know From Agnes with Love, but I'm not familiar with some of the others. The rest of them I don't know. No. So I got something to do mean, the show. This guy directed the second episode of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Gilligan's Island. That was President Gilligan. If you're looking for the 12 name. 12 o'clock that. high, Perry Mason. Get smart, man. I bet I've watched one of these episodes recently because I've been watching it on Voodoo. Season one, episode six. Yes, sir. A fugitive. Oh, wow. I mean, all these lineup of, of TV shows is just setting him up for once he hits the silver screen. Dude, I mean, he, he this shot is the top of the top of the top already. He directed the banana split. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, yeah, let's. Yeah, that's so good. But yeah, he did like everything. Like he did TV for like 20 years, right? Almost 20 years. So and then, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 1976. Uh, it wasn't his first film, but his first big one, The Omen. I was going to ask, which... if, yes, you got some good stories about The Omen. Have you seen uh, this first uh, movie, Salt and Pepper? His I have first, not. His directorial debut. Okay, then I don't have anything to say about it. I was just curious. Okay, go ahead. The Omen. Let's talk. Yeah, I'm, about... I'm not going to get into, like, because there's too much stuff. And honestly, I'd rather talk about Superman. But mm-hmm. um, The Omen is just, you know, is one, after The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary's Baby really kind of started it, uh, where you got the kind of prestige horror film. And The Omen is not only a prestige horror film, but it's also really creepy. Um and it's so good that when they remade it, basically just remade it shot for shot. Yep. Um, but he got the omen and it did so well that the Salkins came to him and said, we want you to do Superman. We'll pay you a million dollars and you have to do two of them at the same time, which had never been done. Um, but he got the script for Superman, which was written by Mario Puzo when he got it. And it was like 500 pages long for the first two movies and he read it and it was not good. And they tried to contemporize Superman and they had a meeting, uh, uh, Terry Savalas. And he's like, who loves your baby? (laughs) And he said, this won't work. So he got his friend to come in and rewrite the movie. And they threw out like a year and a half's worth of pre-production. And they said, Everything on Krypton is a science fiction movie. Everything in Smallville is a Norman Rockwell painting. And then it's a comic strip once you get to Metropolis. And they stuck by one motto, verisimilitude, you know, keep it real. Um, Like there has to be a sense of reality in the whole thing. And they did something that like thinking about it now hurts my brain. Because imagine you're making a movie and you have to make somebody fly, right? Sure. But the problem is, it's not just once or twice. This is like the thing that your character does. So if this doesn't work, literally none of your movie works. And you're making two of them at the same time. 
and you only have the guy playing your villain for two weeks. <laughs> you, you have to Ridiculous. shoot everything for two movies with Gene Hackman in two weeks. So they put together, they built several new technologies, including this uh, front projection that is this giant contraption where you project film. Uh, you basically have two cameras set up or what can one camera, one projector. Um, and they're synchronized together and it like fits inside of a, an airplane hanger. It's just ridiculous. Um, they had something like, uh, I think 11 crews shooting on six continents at the same time. Jesus. Yeah. Insane. And then you get, they got through almost all of it and they said, we're running out of money. Uh, even though you shot 85% of the second film, we're not shooting any more of that right now. Finish the first one and then we'll go back and shoot the rest of the second one after the first one's done. They shoot the first one. It is a huge film. Um, makes the equivalent of like a billion dollars now, right? Um, oh, is that all? Yeah. And they fire him from the second film and they bring in the guy who did Hard Day's Night to reshoot just enough to get credit for it. And then 40 years later, uh, fan uh, outrage, not outrage, but fan uh, prodding gets them to release a director's cut of the second film that's all, mostly his footage. Right. So it's like the original Snyder cut. Um, Only good. Yeah. No, no, it's, yeah. The, the Donner version of Superman 2 is thematically so much better than the theatrical version. But uh, yeah, that, for me, that's my absolute favorite movie of his. It's my personal favorite movie of all time. I think, you know, if, if we could save one movie to show future selves this is what we wish we could be these are our values you know i think that would be a perfect movie it has kind of everything in it and it's also one of the most beautiful looking movies i've ever seen it has some of the most amazing music ever used the writing is so snappy the editing is even snappier it's just it's a perfect film and then he follows that up with inside moves and yes I was going to pitch this to you. Handicapped after an unsuccessful suicide attempt, a man finds common ground in the troubled souls at a local dive bar. How is that not genius, man? Come on now. <laughs> but, you know, and then the toy, which, you know, problematic to say the least. A little racist. A little racist. Well, I bet, you know, they also kind of knew it, you know, I think. Does not that make it any... better or worse? That, no, no, no. Uh, both at the same time actually <laughs> but yeah. uh yeah that that movie's uh, uh has some problems but then we move into awesome stuff like lady hawk and the goonies uh lady hawk i'm unfamiliar with obviously the goonies um i definitely have enjoyed on multiple occasions it do you, can you tell me anything about lady hawk um i saw it once years ago um there i need to go back and rewatch it because i mean you know it's a young michelle pfeiffer got rutger hauer and matthew broderick crazy yeah it, it's it's weird um but it's medieval stuff it's uh sword and sorcery it's mid-80s uh fantasy so yeah 
has Richard Donner ever talked about his decision to do all four lethal weapons? Uh, it's certainly not a knock on him or judge on him. I've enjoyed all four, but like it's, you know, that takes up a lot of your career whenever you do that. And uh, I think they just had so much fun on the first one and they all got along really well, like so much so that um, after lethal weapon three, he did Maverick and in Maverick, you know, which stars uh, uh, what's his name of, uh, uh mel gibson there's a scene where he's robbed and he's robbed by danny glover and they even call attention to it yeah. and even more more than that there's a scene where he helps out uh, where maverick helps out uh this group of women who are you know taking a wagon train across uh the country and one of them is margot kidder you know so he's calling attention to his own movies um but he's also working with people that he likes is Lethal Weapon 2 the best of the four? Yes, without a doubt. Except the ending is like laughably um, cheap. Yes. <laughs> I remember yes. watching it for the first time. It's like, I have diplomatic immunity. Immunity has been revoked. Shoots him in the head. End of movie. <laughs> it's like, no, you're going to jail for a while. There's like he had diplomatic immunity. It doesn't matter what he did. That's the whole point of having diplomatic immunity. Hands washed to the situation. Hands washed. I will tell you that third one was okay. These, fourth one. All of these have been um fascinating up to this point. But for me, the underrated ones come later in his career. Maverick. For Assassins, me. Maverick, Conspiracy Theory, and 16 Blocks are all just hidden gems that i don't think most people even talk about anymore or watch no I love them all maverick i saw in the theater and became i became obsessed with it like i went back and watched the original show i think it is one of the smartest funniest scripts i've ever seen um everything about it's perfect uh the the gambling scene on the riverboat is just filled with a who's who of old-timey and even at the time, contemporary uh, uh, country western singers. Yep. Assassins. But, um, you still you still have a whole uh, special place in your heart for that. I've never seen it, but you even missed Radio Flyer. Radio Radio Flyer. Radio Flyer is a deeply upsetting movie, and I I saw that as a kid, thinking it was going to be kind of like the Sandlot, and just like, no, no, this is really dark. Did you ever see Radio Flyer? I'm try As you're talking about, I'm looking at the IMDb. I, I don't think so. I think I missed that one. It is. It's a hell of a film. Um, because you know it, it it has the two brothers and it's you know set in I think the 50s or 60s. But then you also have like child abuse and just it's it's rough. It, it's really rough. Like I saw it kind of around the same time I saw uh, Sandlot, I think. And I thought it was going to be that same kind of vibe. And man, it is not. I just learned just now that the Wachowskis were involved in Assassins. They wrote Assassins. They wrote it, yeah. yeah, yeah didn't they got that. Conspiracy Theory, so that's like his sixth movie with uh, Mel Gibson. You yep. know, when, they, when people talk about directors and actors working together, they never talk about Donner and Gibson. Like, they've worked together like six times. I That's think, a lot. <laughs> I think people still are a little apprehensive about talking about Mel. 
even though he was in a movie this year that I enjoyed, but that's neither here nor there. And 16 Blocks was one we both got excited about earlier. I love 16 Blocks. I think 12 people have seen this movie, and I've seen it multiple times. I had a lot of fun with this movie. Uh, You know, it's it's, um, not Bruce Willis at his best, but he's certainly trying to be at his best. He gave it his all. I, I give him that in that movie. Um, Roger Ebert gave it three stars out of four, and I think that's perfect. Like, if I had to say, yeah, it's a it's a B plus. It is a solid B plus. It is a workman workman's kind of movie. I I do need to rewind though, really quick. Yes, please. Um, so right before Sixteen Blocks, he did Timeline. Paul and Walker, I'm baby. Not a big fan of the movie. Um, it's it's okay. Like like, there's nothing Benefit necessarily. Jumper. Yeah, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but. I got an interesting little connection to it. Um, yes, please. A friend of mine who did some music for me in my first movie, and uh, I went to school with her. Um, she's a really good friend, and uh, she was working. She well, she was doing two things while this movie is being produced. One, she was working at the studio. Uh, I think just interning uh, for somebody there, and meanwhile, she was also training for the Olympics. Uh, at the time, she was like the number two ranked um, archery uh, archer, uh, female archer in the country. Mm-hmm. And they found that out while she was interning. And they said, oh, well, we need you to do something for us. And they brought her in for a day where they had dozens of different types of bows, do- dozens of different types of arrows. And she basically would do a short shot, long shot. She did every kind of variation you possibly could with different types of armament so they could record the sound for that movie. So every time you hear a bow and arrow in that movie, nice. it's her, which is really neat. That is pretty cool. That, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, I'm going to watch that movie probably within the next week. I'm not going to lie to you. Jessica's not listening to this, but on the off chance she is uh hi, Jessica. And yeah, that was, that's pretty awesome. That was a little bit about Richard Donner. I just like to deep dive sometime in people's IMDb. Richard Donner is, as you definitely better have heard just now, one of the greats. So many yeah. great films in his uh, in his discography. Great I'm TV f- too. Like he he made TV when TV was fighting film. Like it yeah. was fighting for its own identity, and he really kind of helped shape quality TV. Because if you take a look at what he did, it's not a lot of bad stuff. It's a lot of pretty great stuff. If not, you know, just famous. Like I mean when you do the most famous episode of one of the most famous television shows of all time, you know, the uh, terror at 20,000 feet. Right. Like, I mean, what else are you going to say? Like he's, he's fantastic. His producing work is even more legendary. Um, I did get to meet him once at a screening of Superman uh, at the arc light and I got his autograph and I was talking with him and I told him I loved all of his work on, uh, Gilligan's Island, and he laughed and thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> nice, because everyone was there, like, "Are you going to do another Superman? Are you going to do Shazam?" And in the middle of him of like having to answer people about just superhero stuff, and I thought, uh, "Let's let, let's throw him one." He probably uh, he, he probably hasn't heard in a while. Let's recommend some stuff. We've got to the end of the episode. I hope that you recommend Gilligan's Island, but you don't have to. <laughs> I just want to make sure that the people have something to watch or uh, enjoy over the next week as they go through their daily lives, getting back to the world. 
they're selling out baseball stadiums. So everything's back to normal now. Matt, tell the people what they should be watching or enjoying this upcoming week. I'm going to say, if you haven't seen it, um, there are two things. One, Godzilla versus Kong, because it's fun. Uh, it is just a good old time. Uh, but also, I want to talk about the, uh, I want to at least recommend the uh, the QAnon documentary on HBO. Yep. That thing. It's funny that, you know, a quarter of the people in the country believe in QAnon and this thing basically unmasks him at the end. And you find out he is literally a nobody. He has no connections. And this is just him dicking around and he's kind of ruined the world. Oops. Like, it, like it's, you know, when someone, and everyone's had this, where you're so tired and so run down and you have so many emotions in you that all you can do is just laugh, you know? Yeah. There is a, have you seen the documentary? Uh, I've not seen the last episode except clips, but I'm very okay. familiar with what you're talking about. There's a moment and it happens at the unmasking where the guy who's been working on it for like three and a half years has the best breakdown tired laugh I've ever seen. Cause it, it like, it's just like, it, it's like, what else can you do? Yeah. What else can you do in that situation? But the fact that they've unmasked this guy and again, you know, a hundred million people still believe it. It's just, it's terrifying. So watch it. Uh, get yourself smarter. <laughs> I'm going to not recommend a movie first before I recommend a movie. I watched Unhinged, the new Russell Crowe movie, where he's a road rage movie. Um, I don't want to say anything per se about it. If you that's still your thing, go watch it. But for me, I was misled. And it is more of a horror movie versus a redemption story so i didn't enjoy it oh, yeah. for me um but what i can recommend was city of lies the johnny depp movie where he plays detective russell pool and uh, he's investigating the tupac and biggie murders and it came well they did it a couple years ago then it got shelved then it got shelved and then johnny depp happened and then everything else um i finally got to watch it and i really really enjoyed it i think that the story is fascinating that's kind of the Tupac story that uh, the bit biggie part of the story that I've known for a while. If you've done much research, you can kind of find a lot of this stuff out. Um, he played Russell Poole really, really well. Like um, I think he goes along in the lines of Jeremy. Uh, what's his name that played Gary Webb. I thought okay. he did a great job. Uh, uh, arrows in, in the Marvel movies. What's the, Jeremy Renner. There you go. There you go. Um, he did a great job playing Gary Webb as well. And um, so City of Lies, it's not necessarily out yet, but whenever you get a chance, I would recommend it. I enjoyed it to pieces. So that's what we got. We've given you a little bit of everything tonight, today, whatever time it is that you listen to this. Matt, is there anything else you want to leave the people with before we go? Um, actually, there is one last thing. Nope, we can't do it. No, just kidding. Oh, okay. I'm no, just kidding. Uh, my my oldest daughter has really gotten into anime, and she and I have watched uh, both seasons of One Punch Man. And while both seasons are very good, the first season especially might be the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. It is fantastic. 
Um, and I don't think you have to be a fan of anime to like it because it kind of uh, takes the piss out of some of the tropes. So that's fantastic. I'll keep Brockmire and that'll be fine with me. Yeah. Till next time. See ya.